Welcome back to the Wallet Podcast. I'm James Marshall, and as always, shout out to our partners, Pure Sports CBD. How good is this stuff? And fortune favours. What a brew. And head over to www.waterlad.com to receive a discount for either of those two products. Okay, today I pretty much have the perfect Waterlad guest. Firstly, he's an absolute lad. Secondly, he's had an incredible rugby career winning premierships, Heineken Cups, World Cups. He's also captained his country as well as representing the British and Irish Lions. But most importantly, He's used his profile to make a positive difference to this world with his foundation and charity work. It is the great lad himself, Lewis Moody. Welcome, Lewis. Thanks for coming on, lad. Pleasure, mate. What an intro, mate. That, is, uh, that has made me feel really special. <laughs> mate, that's always the goal. Now you can start sharing your unbelievable journey. <laughs> <laughs> and look what I've been reading all last night, the great Mad Dog book, Lewis Moody. What a book. What a purchase. I bet you got to you got to do a lot of colouring in in there, didn't you? There's a lot of pictures, a lot of colouring in. Dot to dot. Oh, the boys want me to read that every night. Oh, they love it. They love the Mad Dog book. <laughs> oh, it's one of those. You know, I, I wrote that, and uh, it was it was just after the 2011 World Cup, which obviously wasn't uh, wasn't a great <laughs> success for us. And uh, you know, we were obviously there together afterwards, right? And yeah. uh, but. I, I remember writing that book, thinking, right, I wanted to, I want to be as honest as possible because I don't want to, I don't want to do another book because it took like a year, and you sit down, you go through everything, and it's made. I don't know what you're like, but I find it hard to remember, you know, <laughs> what happened last week, let alone what I did, yeah. you know, ten years ago in my career. So it took a long time to get this book together, and then I was like, I want to be really honest, I want to be really honest. And then when you put it out and and you read it back for the first time, and you press sort of go. And and then you pause for a second and, and remember that your, your mum's going to read it and, and some of the stories you wish you could sort of just take back. <laughs> Why did I say that? Why did I say that? But, yeah, no, mate, oh, don't a, read it to the kids. It is a great book, though. Can you still buy it? It must have been number one for ages, was it? <laughs> mate, if we'd won the World Cup in 2011, it might have been. But, no, because we got absolutely destroyed, uh, not only on the pitch but but off the pitch, it yeah, no, it, it it did all right, but it was. Uh, I think you can find it in the in the, if you're lucky in the bargain basement now. Uh, tends to tends to be used tends to, tends to be used a lot of kindling to start fires. Well, maybe after this podcast and you've given them a wee snippet of your life, they can go back and repurchase that book, and you might see it back up on the charts again because this podcast is massive. <laughs> well, mate, I've been I've been watching it from over here. I've been uh, I have been enjoying it, obviously. You know, global Jimmy Marr superstar and all that. <laughs> anyway, you talked about your memory and struggling to remember for your book. Um, an interesting thing that came, has come out recently is I think your ex-teammate and mate, um, Stephen Thompson, is looking to sue World Rugby. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't know. I don't know what it's been like over there or in the Southern Hemisphere, but over here, there's been a there's been a super big push on on all the concussion stuff over the last few years, and obviously they had we had all that with World Rugby, right? Was it uh, Chris Nowinski, who's uh, the American football guy that came over and and, w- and was really pushing it hard? I think he was the guy that first broke it with the with the NFL, and and there's been massive changes made, right? So yeah. which has all been good for the game, and, and sort of wishing that <laughs> it been happened when I was playing. <laughs> you know, I might remember some more of my career, but. Um, you know, so Tom, so talking about Steve Thompson particularly, and you know, that was a 
it was an Alex Popham who was a who was a Welsh international as well. So those were the, the two main guys that came out and and I roomed with Tomo for a long time, top man, and I had no idea. Still, you know, speak to him relatively frequently. Yeah. Um. So so I was surprised, man. It was a, it was a big shock, and a, a I was very sad to to hear that he'd been diagnosed with early onset dementia essentially which is what my my dad just passed away from and he'd had that for 10 years but he was you know 78 rather than um you know 42 so having seen what it does to the individual and and then the the impact it has on family and carers so firstly just really you know really upset for him but uh I, you know where, where do you go from there you know i've listened to uh i listened to um the RPA over here, so the Rugby Players Association, did a did a webinar on on this because there was a lot of hysteria and media and stuff at the time, and they had some scientists on there, which was great. You know, people giving this guy called Dr. Willie Stewart, who's who's doing a lot of research into uh, is it CTE, which is the uh, yeah. which is the the stuff that you find in your brain, right, and when it gets bashed around. Um, and, and he's doing a lot of, of research. Um, so he was on, and there were a few other um, top doctors and clinicians on talking about it. And they said essentially that the, the risk of getting dementia in the normal population, I think, is really low at the minute. But he said the risk of getting um, dementia as a, as a sports person is, is no different. Um, so I suppose that was quite nice to hear you know right because it is it is concerning you know i genuinely oh yeah I, I had a lot of concussions jimmy i know you avoided tackling like the plague so you probably were fine but <laughs> too skillful mate you're too skillful could never be caught but um but yeah man, I, I got banged up i got banged up all the time so as, as i know a lot of players of my era did and so you do you do sort of worry about it not not in a way like that it, it hampers my life or anything but it does you know it crosses my mind every now and again so i think it was quite a relief to to listen to these you know eminent professionals talk about the, the realities of the risks and actually there's um the information they from from what they were talking about was saying there's no greater risk at the minute from what they know for sports people to be any more prevalent to getting dementia but they they didn't say that obviously yeah. repeated concussions or bangs to the head isn't going to have a you know, uh, an impact, you know. Do you feel like it's had a massive impact on your memory? Like, obviously, your memory is pretty shot. Do you think that's due to your rugby career? Um, do you know, I, I, I sort of play around with it a bit with the whole memory thing because, you know, I do, I've always struggled to sort of remember stuff and, and it's sometimes an easy way of, uh, you know, if you're losing track or if you need to take the, the piss out of yourself a bit for a minute just to get a bit of a laugh, it's an easy <laughs> way of doing that, isn't it? But, um but uh, I have struggled with it on and off, but I I couldn't say that it was definitely because of my rugby. Uh, but you don't regret you don't regret um, playing professional rugby, do you? No, mate, not at all, not at all. A lot, and a lot of the guys, you know, and Tomo included, came out and said that you know he, you know, if he'd have known, he he wouldn't have played. But it's not, you know, and, and I'm sorry to hear that. That's how he feels. But that's not the case for me, mate. I I love the game. There are risks in everything you do, right? I knew there are risks in playing rugby. Um, you, know, you get injured, you get banged in the head, you know, all sorts can happen. But the the life that it afforded me, the the opportunities it created and, you know, the things that it taught me, oh, mate, absolutely. No, I have no no regrets whatsoever. Yeah. Um, you know, I love I love the game. It's just 
one of the the most awesome things I got to do during my life. You tackled with your face a fair amount throughout your career. And obviously there's a game against Tonga where you had a couple of real brutal head knocks. Uh, was that the worst concussions you had? And talk to me about that experience. Mate, well, to be fair, like so that again, there's a guy uh, playing for Tonga called Nili Latu, who's a great player. Yeah. Um, he came over and played for Newcastle over here for a while as well. Um, and I, I'd been out of the team. Brian Ashton was the England coach at the time and, and he, he didn't rate me very much. So I was sort of benching for the first three matches. That was my first start against Tonga. So desperate to impress and uh, and flew out the blocks, tried to tried to charge down the fullback. Um, I mean, my technique was whenever you boys, uh, like like when we first met, right, on the pitch, you're playing for Calvasano? Eroni. <laughs> Eroni, that's it, Eroni. Quality. Um, One of the Italian biggest games of your career, wasn't and, it? <laughs> yeah. Mate, we, I, I remember Bryony calling me and saying, please don't hurt Jimmy, please don't hurt James. I think, <laughs> think she's genuinely scared I was going to get hurt by you, because eh? she said the same thing to me. She's like, oh, watch out for Lewis, he's a, like he's a psycho. I was like, don't you worry, <laughs> he won't last at 80. <laughs> and then about 20 into the game, you're hopping either. off. <laughs> Oh, right. Uh, I, I, I missed the Six Nations because of that bloody game. But yeah, and I didn't get near you either, which yeah. is really disappointing because I, you know, when, when Bryce called me, I was like, right, okay, he's definitely getting it twice as hard. I didn't get anywhere near you. I don't think I made one tackle on you. No, that you probably didn't. means that you just passed it a lot rather than run. <laughs> I don't think we had the ball, to be fair. It was about 60 <laughs> nil. Yeah, with, mate, I scored. I scored one try in that game from a pushover from about three meters out. It was an absolute gem. What a beaut! One to remember. But no, mate. Here, look. So that 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 Tonga game. It was that was the first. That was the first time post match that I'd ever really genuinely appreciated what concussion was about. So I charged his kick down. Got it completely wrong. Well, I didn't get it wrong. I got I got to him. I missed. A, I didn't get the ball, but I got his. Uh, I got his leg. His leg actually kicked my leading arm. Yeah, and my my own hand then ended up going in my eyes. So my thumb went in my eye, and uh, and I went blind. So no, no, what am I talking about? That was uh, <laughs> that was a totally different one. <laughs> that was Gloucester. That was partly Gloucester. I tell you, my memory's fine, mate. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. Is it? <laughs> Tonga, Tonga, that's it. Two thousand and seven. So it was a charge down, but I got his knee right in the in the temple. I don't I don't know who he was, but he was a Tongan fullback. And I was out. I was out cold on the floor. And I remember there was a, uh, there was a young lad playing for us called Matthew Tate, who's a wonderful player. Um, he was like twenty-one at the time. And I remember lying on the floor thinking, "Why is he? Why is he talking so strange?" Because he was saying my name like really slowly, like Mudos, Mudos. That was my nickname, Mudos. And um, and then I realised that I was actually lying on the floor, like not moving, <laughs> and uh, and he was trying he was trying to help me up, literally. So I was I was out, and it was back, you know, it was back then when it was concussion was not understood properly, and you had virtually no protocols. Any protocols you did had, you could work your way around, couldn't you? By you know, we I think we had to do the work. The hardest it ever got was you had to you had to say the months of the year backwards. You know, which I'd struggle to do when not concussed, <laughs> quite frankly. So, I mean, why they come on and ask me that? But, um, but, but yeah, basically, I just, I just, you know, blagged my way out of it. Back then, you could, you know, you could just the the decision was in the players' hands, right? And I just sort of pushed the dock off and go, mate, I'm fine. Let me back on. Ran around second half, no, end of the end of the first half. Nearly Latu 
I got short ball off Johnny Wilkinson and uh, <laughs> got absolutely smoked in the head. So just came flying through. It was like chin and chest. Yeah. And uh, and I was out again. And the next the next day, so we won convincingly. I actually played a really good game. You know, I don't recall any of it, but yeah. I played a I played a really good game. And the next day, so the first real recognition and and time I sat back and went, okay, this is something that needs to be taken more seriously. We went we ended up going to Euro Disney. And um, we had like the day off. It was it was before, so uh, I think it was the last. Maybe it was the last game of the of the pool. I can't remember. So we were then building up to the quarterfinal, um, and we went on these roller coasters at Euro Disney. And I went on this thing called the Black Hole, and literally I got in. And Annie was like, "You probably shouldn't go on this, you know, with those concussions." Yes, I was like, "No, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I've never had a problem." Wow, mate, <laughs> went on. Literally, first drop, I was like that. Mm, get me off. Get me off. Get me off. Oh, it was awful. My head, like, my head was exploding. And, you know, I can laugh about it now, thankfully. But at the time, it was awful. And it, it made me it made me look back and go, I spent the worst bit about it was, but then I had to spend the rest of the day, like, following everyone around, all the lads and, and the girlfriends, carrying, essentially carrying the girls' bags, handbags, because I couldn't do anything. Um, but, yeah, mate, it gave me a whole newfound respect for for how you how you deal with uh, concussion right and and I am I am really glad that all the protocols are in place now because the lads you you need to be looked after like you don't know what impact that sort of stuff's going to have on you so um you, you asked me earlier would I go back and change anything we were operating with what we understood at the time you know the medics were operating with what they understood at the time and and as a player quite frankly I didn't want to come off the pitch yeah so you know, I'm glad they had to change the rules to put the power in the medic's hand and the doctors, not not the players. Jeez, <laughs> I can't believe you went on a roller coaster after a double head knock. Yeah, man, <laughs> that is brutal. <laughs> yeah, it's not not my best decision. <laughs> did you play um, in the quarterfinal the following week, or did you have a couple of weeks off at least? Uh, no, no, mate, no. But played every game, so you know, I. Uh, so we started the start against Australia the following week, and again, all you had to do was pass the the computer test, right? Which everyone. So I don't know whether you did it, Jimmy. Yeah. So you you did like a base test prior to, let's say, the match. So you did it on Monday. Yeah. And then if you got concussion, you'd do a second test afterwards. But so I mate, if if you passed if you passed that, then then you were fine. But you could always, you could you could scam them right because you could just do a really rubbish base test yeah. when you first did it. And Which is, that is what you pretty did? much what all the players did. Yeah, yeah, mate. So it was, yeah, it was, and, and when you look back, it's not cool. But let's just again, it was, it was what we what we operated in, and, and concussion was not treated like a, a big issue for whatever reason when we played, right? Yeah. So we didn't necessarily take it seriously, and we wanted to play. We didn't, we didn't want to miss a game. You know, it was a quarter final World Cup. You know, lucky mate, I was lucky. I got to play in three. Yeah. You know, if you get to play in one, the last thing you want to do is is get a headbang and then miss the quarter final. Obviously now. We know it's different, you know, sort of Jack uh, Jack Noel of England, you know, miss, he missed the Premiership final and a Heineken Cup final because of a, of a head knock, you know, so now it's it's being well catered for, but but not back then, mate. If you knew what you knew now, would you have still tried to play that quarter final? Oh, I probably I probably would have done. I probably would have done, mate. I just love playing. I love playing. Like I'm not, you know, you're you are I feel like you're you're a rugby thinker, right? You are you're 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 a good analyst. You you probably be an incredible coach. Um, you you love the sort of reading of the game, understanding it, and all that. The idiosyncrasies, the laws. I just loved playing. Yeah. I wasn't really that fussed about the laws. You know, it's probably 
you know, probably showed in my style of play and the number of penalties that gave away. Um, yeah. He was just was, mad, just loved yeah. it. How good. Anyway, well, let's go back to the start of your career. I know that most people would have will know a little bit of your career because they've read your book, but take us back to the young Lewis Moody. What was it like for you growing up? Mate, it was uh, it was simple. I just you know we had uh, we had school. I found rugby when I was five. So one of the lads, Matt Foster, um, was a guy that introduced me to it. And you know, rugby back then was full contact from the moment you played, True. which you know which appealed which appealed to my <laughs> uh, my style of uh, exuberance and enthusiasm. And plus, I was you know as a kid, I was I was pretty. I was I was massive compared to the other kids, so yeah. it was significantly easier for me, I but imagine. It says in your book that you're a back, or did you just make that up because you forgot? <laughs> no, I was a centre. I was a centre until the year before I made my premiership debut, and then they realised that I couldn't catch or, you know, pass <laughs> or sidestep or anything. Oh, shit, was it that long? I didn't realise you were uh, back till that late. Yeah, so I, uh, so I was playing school first team at centre, and then one of my – I went to the county trial – you know, trying to trying to make it. So we have over here. We well back then we had county. So you had school, club, county, um, regional, and then you had like England school boys and what have you. So county was like the first step on the ladder for me, and and I didn't get in under sixteen. So I thought I'd definitely get in under eighteen. Didn't didn't get in. Well, I went to the trial, and and thankfully one of my coaches or two coaches, Brian Welford and uh, and Andy Walsenholm, were two guys that were like we should try him at Plankers. And I got moved during this one game. And I have to admit, even for me, it was like an epiphany. It was like, wow, okay, this all of a sudden I'm just I'm just following the ball around and tackling people. This is like the best thing ever. And uh, and that was it, mate. So I was, you know, from from the age of five to seventeen, I was I was a centre and loved it, you know, just loved getting muddy, loved tackling, loved yeah. the whole team ethos and um, you know, grew up watching Leicester Tigers. You know, went to Oakham School. My first team coach was Ian Dosser Smith, who I'm sure no one in New Zealand will remember, but he was a, he was a Leicester Tigers um, stalwart and, and legend. And, and he sort of nudged me off to Leicester um, when I finished school and said, "Go on, as, as an 18 year old sort of kid, see how you get on." I weighed about 13 stone. You know, even back then in 1996, that was still pretty light for a back row. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I remember, I remember, I remember, go, I remember going into my first game. So, played my first game for Leicester Tigers, thinking that you know I had all the confidence, the bravado of uh, you know as a public school boy. You know, come through the England schools that from that county trial, end up playing England schools that year, and yeah. then played England schools uh, 21s and all that sort of stuff. And thought, oh yeah, this is great. I'm going to show these boys how it's done. And uh, oh, mate, I was, I was absolutely village. It was like I felt like a schoolboy in a, you know, it was like being a rag doll. Felt like a child, <laughs> just getting picked up and thrown around. The, the worst bit about it was there was a guy called Dean Richards who was an England player and you know of great renown at that point, and he was our captain and, and a sort of a schoolboy hero of mine. Actually, I grew up watching him. He played in the '91 World Cup final against Australia, and he sort of gathered us all in and you know it was like right lads whatever you do you know you keep hold of the ball you know when that kickoff comes to us 
you keep hold of it. We drive, you know, get Joel Stransky was our fly off at the time. Yeah. Yeah. You get the ball into Joel and he'll clear the lines and we'll get down the other end and put some pressure on, score some points. You know, we were like 15, 15 nil down in my first ever game for Leicester. Uh, I was like, right, right, right. And I was listening as a schoolboy, like just in the huddle, there's like Martin Johnson, Joel Stransky, Rory Underwood, Dean Richards, who were like all my schoolboy heroes, like watching these guys playing World Cups. And I'm really not taking anything in. So the first kickoff came to me. And, uh, you know, Dean's like, keep it, keep hold of it, drive it, old school rugby. And um, came to me and I caught it. And I was pretty quick back then, Jimmy. And uh, caught it, sidestep and ran off. And like, there was a guy called Frano Bottega. Do you remember Frano yeah, Bottega? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So league, league legend and union legend. And, uh, and he was playing for Oral at the time. And, uh, and as, I, as the sort of pitch opened up and I made a sidestep, I thought I was like going to go the length of the pitch and you know change the course of the game for what my schoolboy heroes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, as I thought that, as I thought that, Frano Botica like scrag tackled me, and uh, and as I was going down, I thought right, like Dino's going, keep hold of the ball, right, drive it, keep it, get it down the other end. Joel will kick it down the other end. We'll put pressure down there, get some points on the board. As I was getting scrag tackled by Frank Botica, I was thinking in my head, I was like, right, Martin Johnson's running a perfect line off my shoulder here. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to give what I thought I did give what I thought was a lovely little flick out the back of my hand and watched it. Because I like, rolled around and watched it all the way until it hit Jono directly in the forehead, which to be fair, it was difficult to miss because he got a massive forehead. But, you know, and the ball then bounced forward and I was like, oh, they picked up and scored under the post. I was like, oh no, oh no. And, you know, in my head I'm thinking, right, these, you know, I'm sure everyone's cocked up before, you know, you know, they must have been there, made a mistake. You know, I'm a young lad, first game. I'm sure they'll be supportive. Jono just literally looked over at me, like literally staring at me. I'm still on the floor, like picked me up by the scruff of the neck. And said, I told you to hold on to the ball. And then other words that I probably won't use on here. <laughs> but it's safe to say I didn't get to play again for about another year and a half until I'd learnt my lesson. Keep hold of the ball. Don't ever try and pass it, basically, was the lesson. <laughs> well, that's brutal. But you were, eight, so you were 18 years old when you made your debut. It's with all these leaders. Yeah. It's crazy, eh? And it was obviously a way more old school rugby environment back then. Um, such an intimidating environment for a kid like you. How do you find the whole off-field side of the team? Um, mate, as an 18-year-old, when you come into a group of men, essentially like that, I found yeah, it was it was tough. I loved it, you know. Don't get me wrong, I did love it, but it was it was it, it was intimidating, probably for all the right reasons, right? Because yeah. you know, I I felt nervous because these guys are all I've been I've grown up watching them. They're like my heroes. Um, you know, there were a couple of guys that were that were great. As I had two mates, well, so. I had two mates, that sounds like I had obviously more than that in life, but, you know, at the time, just the two. Um, there's a guy called Leon Lloyd, who, you know, who's, who's one of my closest mates and, uh, you know, grew up playing together, went through all the county system and, uh, and we were in the squad together. Um, but apart from us, that was, that was pretty much it. The rest were the sort of seasoned old school that had come through the amateur era. That was the first season of, it was the first full season of professional rugby. Um, to me, it was an intimidating place, right? It was an intimidating place. You felt like you sort of, you didn't speak in, you know, until you were spoken to type thing or, or you didn't speak until you'd earned your stripes. And, yeah. you know, that was fine. You just cracked on. And, and I, I was never, I was always a pretty shy kid anyway, to be honest. And I just wanted my sport to, to do the talking. And, and eventually it did. You know, I, university derailed me for a little bit during that first year and I got caught up 
maybe enjoying myself rather too much and sidetracked from uh, training and all that sort of stuff. But when I was late for my first appraisal, you know, like player appraisal, yeah, um, I was. <laughs> we'd gone out the night before and I'd completely forgotten I had it as a naive 18 or it would have been 19 then. So it was the end of the season. Yeah. And, um, my housemate got a phone call and he was like, uh, Dean Richards is on the phone. Apparently you're supposed to be in a meeting. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, ran down, ran down the stairs. I'd left my car in town. Yeah. Um, and it's like a 10 minute drive to the training ground. And thankfully my housemate had his car there, but he only had, one leg because he he had an accident as a kid so his pedals were reversed so the brake was the accelerator and the accelerator was the brake when this sounds like a comedy sketch right it was that was carnage i was like how am i going to drive so i was trying to get out oh man it was it was a car literally it was a car crash waiting to happen don't know how i made it to training i made it to training after like bunny hopping up the road for that and uh and i got there walked in and they just literally as soon as i walked in they went get out and um made me sit outside for about 15 minutes. And you talk about old school rugby, mate. So old, this is old school rugby saved my career, essentially, as an 18-year-old lost, naive schoolboy that was just enjoying himself and didn't understand what professional rugby was about. Yeah. Um, so I sat outside. They said, come in. There was Joel Stransky, Dean Richards, and John Wells, who were the coaching staff at the time. And Joel Stransky actually asked, you know, he was like, right, can you, can you lift your top up? Because they've been talking about diet and nutrition, and obviously I'd not been adhering to that as a student. And I think Joel, you know, wanted to impress on me the fact that I was essentially a flabby, you know, teenager still. <laughs> so I lifted my I lifted my shirt up and and running literally from my shoulder to my to my hip with three massive like stud marks. Oh, and uh and and Wellesley and Wellesley just went, and that's the reason we're keeping you, lad. But that's the only reason. <laughs> well, I've got <laughs> I promise I'm gonna get it right next year. Uh, but it was a, you know, it was a, it was a good, it was a good lesson. Like I was, you know, I was a public school boy. I was, I'd gone from all the rules and regulations of school to suddenly being free out in the world and just, I just embracing life. And, you know, I, you know, I got it wrong that first year. I, I did too much partying, too much, you know, enjoying myself and not focusing enough on, on being a sportsman. And, and even in my, actually in my first England tour, you know, which was uh, 1998. So a year and a half later, you know, I was I was still battling that that mentality. I, w- I was trying to be professional, but I was also wanted to fit in and all that sort of stuff. So after that 98 season, I finally, you know, put all that behind me and just focused on you know playing the game and being being a professional. But you know, trying to find that balance when you were a young kid yeah. and the game was switching from amateur to professional was was tricky. And you obviously, um, you did it with success. You ended up playing over 200 games for Leicester Tigers and winning about a 1,000 premierships and a fair bit of Heineken Cup success as well. Do you want to talk through any of those um, ones that stand out for you? Well, mate, bizarrely, actually, the one the one I enjoyed the most probably was was one I played zero minutes in. I was on I was on the bench in, in the Heineken Cup final, so the European final. So from '98 to 2002, we'd we'd won four back to back Premiership titles. You know, so we were we were just all, we were unbeaten at, at Welford Road, which is the Tigers' home ground for for four seasons. Yeah, four it was four and a half years actually. Ended up being. And, and during all those, all that success, and I had a, you know, I had a big role to play in a lot of that. You know, sometimes I was in, sometimes out. We had so, we had guys like Josh Cronfeld come over playing the back row. We had Neil Back, yeah. uh, Martin Curry, you know, guys that are all world class players. Um, 
So there was a huge amount of competition for place so and a lot of changing of place as well. So come the Heineken Cup final in 2001, I actually, I was on the bench and, and I didn't get a single minute. But the build-up to that had been we'd, We'd gone to uh, the Heineken Cup final in '98. Um, we'd won the league. We got to the. We played it in Cardiff Arms Park, you know, precursor to the Millennium Stadium, or now the Principality. We lost that to Breve, and we believed we were the best side in in Europe for a long time. Yet we we weren't able to win um, the Heineken Cup. You know, Bath won it in '98, and, and you know they couldn't get anywhere near us in in the league at that time. So it was a real um, you know sort of monkey on the back. And, you know, Leicester, Leicester's a real old school club, or it was then, in the best sense of, of, of the meaning of the word old school, in that everyone that was around the club was, had been a part of the club. They played, you know, the coach and the chairman, um, the MD, the CEO, they'd all been former players. You know, the kit man, uh, the physio, you know, the, the, only, the only guy that, uh, you know, actually one of, one of the physios is probably one of the only guys that hadn't actually been a player. So the whole backroom staff knew what it was about to, to play for the Tigers. Yeah. And there was there was this just build-up to this game was just massive. There was so much pressure on us and we were so brilliant and uh, through the year, but we hadn't been able to nail the Heineken Cup. And we get to the final, we're playing Stade Francais in France, like in the Stade de France, not, you know, not at a neutral venue. We're basically playing it in their home stadium. Yeah. And we, you know, I think that got our ankles up a bit, but we were just desperate to prove that we were, that we should be up there and recognised as one of the best sides in Europe. And although I didn't play a single minute in that game, you know, being a part of that squad on that day and how much it meant, I've still got the ball up on the shelf up behind me from that match day. And it's got all the players, well, the entire squad, but all the backroom staff. So the guys like Peter Wheeler, Pete Tom, um, John Duggan, Cliff Shepard, who is a kit man for... Donkey's year, sadly no longer with us. And, and you know, he would he was great because he would give Austin Healy stick all the time because <laughs> he was a winger as well. And and Austin never scored as many tries as him. So, you know, he'd do stuff like not 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 put a shirt out on time or hide it. And oh, it was just brilliant. But, you know, having something like that that was so important to the entire club, even though I didn't play a single minute, that's what made the game for me. Being a part of something with a club that I loved, with people that I loved playing for. Um, that made you feel special, that made you feel a part of something more more than just a game. It just felt massive. And I, I'm sure, Jimmy, you know, as a as a born and bred Kiwi man, you guys seem to and understand that better than anyone. And I think as as a club at Leicester, we we really, we really knew what that meant. And it was a real special time to play the game. You know, I absolutely loved those years at at the Tigers and, you know, yeah. the the parties after were pretty enjoyable as well. <laughs> but that's a pretty powerful um, culture that you've obviously developed at Leicester because, I mean, most teams are try and replicate that. Some teams can replicate, but not every team can because people put themselves first. But um, then you obviously went on to become captain of Leicester. Mate, I didn't. I Well, I was I, I, I was captain of Leicester for a for only a couple of games, so I was never uh, I was never club captain, and that's actually something I I really regretted during my career because I did go on to become England captain, um, and because uh, I was I think it was just because I was inherently shy, and I, I genuinely believed that I wasn't going to be good enough as a captain. Hmm. That when I was when I was offered it, you know, or when it was suggested to me, or I was just inherently nervous I had that fear of failure thing right I just I was I was worried about doing it even though I'd captained all my schoolboy sides and you know representative sides for whatever reason 
uh, you know, it made me nervous. I did it on a handful of occasions for for Leicester, and and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And one actually, one of my biggest regrets, Jimmy, is you know getting to captain England as you know for the last two seasons of my international career was was just incredible. But you also learn so much. And I remember listening to Richie McCaw talk about his you know lessons from two thousand and seven, and you know how he how it helped him grow and develop and understand himself better as a captain. And I think, you know, for me, I had exactly the same lessons taught to me and that I learned through failing many times over again and making poor decisions and, you know, not delegating enough, taking on too too much responsibility, therefore your form dips, you know, and all these sorts of things that you sort of learn. And I got to a point where, you know, 32, I was like, do you know what, I've, I'm now I now feel like I'm ready to, to to be a captain. But you know my time my time had come and gone in a, in an England shirt, and you know I knew it as well. I knew there were better players than me around, and um, you know I I had to put my hands up and say, look, it's time for me to step away, and you guys need to take over. But I wish I so my regret is I wish I'd had the confidence as a kid to to take that responsibility on earlier and not and not doubt myself, right? You know, there's, and there's so much great stuff going on in the world about mental health and well-being, and, you know, and kindness and confidence. And actually, you know, you need that. You need to give yourself some self-love. You know, you need to, you need to have that inner belief, which I think we all do as athletes, right? You have an inner belief in your own personal ability, yeah. I think, but around certain elements, it can maybe wane. And, and for me, it was definitely around that leadership piece is worrying whether I'd, I'd be good enough, but I'm glad I did it. You know, those two years were, a roller coaster ride with England of, of beating Australia in Australia, winning the Six Nations, and then obviously, uh, you know, getting uh, getting kicked out of the World Cup in in 2011 by France. So it was, yeah, and all the fallout from that. So that was that was the lows, yeah. but it was it was still an enjoyable experience. Well, let's get to your England career. Obviously, a very successful career with England, the national side. Um, Start with your debut. How was it going into the England camp for the first few times and how was that very first game in the Red Rose jersey? Mate, you sound like you're slightly jealous. That, you know, it's not like you wish you'd filled it on yourself. I've still got one of your jerseys. I wear it most nights. <laughs> <laughs> in bed. Oh, I bet Bridie loves that. She makes uh, me wear it. <laughs> so, mate, I've given one to all the family. Oh, this is probably at the point we should say, yeah. The, you know the, the fact that you're actually a, a relative is, is you know is incredible but i have given you know you're not the only family relative to to get to get a jersey johnny johnny our other brother-in-law has also got one but um i can't remember what you asked me mate what did you ask me um how was your English first game debut? yeah it was terrifying mate it was terrifying actually going into the camp for the first time was terrifying the only easy bit you know when, you, when you're going into a new environment uh, you know, with the best players in the country, you just want to impress, right? You want to get everything, you want to get everything right. And you know, it was a Clive at that time was was building a a really unique squad, a unique team, managers, and you know, and and I was lucky that in two thousand and one, I sort of dropped in just at the right time, and all of this was gradually coming together. This big plan was 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 being hatched, but isn't it, mate? It was, it was terrifying. You know, I was lucky in the fact that I had a load of Leicester mates there. Yeah. You know that uh, that I played with week in week out. That was that was the godsend. But your first camp is terrifying. Um, you know, you just desperately want to impress. And uh, and my my first cap actually turned out to be not that not that scary. And my first cap at Twickenham was was terrifying. I remember feeling sick before the game, and you know, Johnny just coming up to me, "Don't worry, mate, you'll be fine, you'll be fine." And and I actually ran onto the pitch and 
and the smoke sort of blinded me momentarily ended up running onto the you know they have all the big flags out on the pitch <laughs> ended up running out onto one of the flags I was like where'd they go where'd everyone go um, but but my first my first cap was was against Canada in I mean it was literally in a field like in the back of some farmyard essentially in uh, in Vancouver um, yeah so you, you know you have great you have great visions of, of making your debut uh, you know um, you know wherever Cardiff Arms Twickenham you know um, but for me it was literally a, a farmer's field and there were about I mean there might have been 500 people watching um, we beat Canada we beat Canada <laughs> Um, and it was actually a great tour, mate. I loved it. And do you know what? It was the first time I felt like a professional. You know, there was no, all the other, you know, a lot of the other lads were, were still, you know, midweek drinks nights or, you know, if the, the lads that weren't involved, obviously, in the match were, were going out midweek um, yeah. and all that sort of jazz. But it was the first time I was, you know, I felt like a proper dedicated professional. I was focused on what I wanted to do. I was up early in the pool, recovery, you know, eating all the boiled chicken and the oily fish and, you know, all the, all the good stuff that was happening <laughs> at that time. I actually felt it was, it was great. And my my Leicester coach was the England coach at the time, forwards coach, John Wells. That was pretty cool because I, I played my first game at Oral, the one I told you about when I had a shocker with him and uh, and I had a lot of respect for him. He was a he was a hard-nosed, old-school coach, but he, he was brilliant because he told you straight, right? A lot of coaches sort of beat around the bush if, if you get dropped or, or aren't honest with you. And he was brilliant. Like, if you got dropped, I would just say, mate, I think I'm playing well. Why, why haven't you picked me? He'd be like, well, you know, you, you don't do this as good as the guy that I picked ahead of you. I was like, okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. I'm going to have to go away and work on that. Then. <laughs> yeah. So he, he, gave you, he gave you good, valid reasons and stuff that you could go away and actually improve on and say, look, I'm doing this better now. Please pick me. But so to be presenting my shirt by, by Wellesley was, uh, was pretty cool the night before the game. Um, and, it, and it still meant the fact that it was on a, a farmer's field in the middle of Vancouver. It still meant as much to me as it would have done if you know if it had been Twickenham Stadium. It was you know it was super special. And I played so talked about Leon Lord, one of my best mates that I grew up with. He was also on that tour, so made my debut with him. Um, and I've still got a picture on the wall of us two after that match, which was sure. which was pretty cool back in back in two thousand one. How good. And then obviously you went pretty well over the next couple of years and made the, and England itself went pretty well as well, um, made the World Cup, 2003 World Cup, you were the winners. You want to talk about that tournament and the lead up to that? Mate, it was, um, you know, as I said, that, that sort of 2001, coming into that England team at that time and there were so many wonderful world-class players. You know, you had Lawrence Delalio, Richard Hill, Neil Back was, you know, was the starting back row that I was trying to break into. Um, Johnny Wilkinson, Matt Dawson, um, Phil Vickery, Jason Leonard. You know, the, the team was just proliferated with world-class players and Kieran Bray, and even in mul- multiple players in multiple positions, you know, which is what you need to, to be a, a world-class competitive side. And it was, I have to admit, I was, it was a real... I enjoyed my rugby at that point. I enjoyed going to camp. It was, it was, it was hard, you know, as it should be, you know, we worked, we worked brutally hard because we knew we had two goals was being the fittest team in the world and being the best prepared. Um, you know, we, we set about being the fittest obviously and working with all the strength and conditioning coaches and putting in the extra hours. So when you finished training at the club, you were doing more, you know, it wasn't about being fitter than the guy at your club or the guy that's 
pushing you in England. It was about being fitter than essentially Richie McCaw for me, you know, which was a big ask because he was a hugely fit human being. But uh, I, I don't think I ever quite achieved that. <laughs> but, but I was working towards it. I was working towards it. But we all we all had that we all had that mindset, right? It was yeah. just everyone was pushing everyone, and that that competitive spirit, that competition for place, just pushed everyone. And there was no way, there was no moment where you could rest on your laurels and and feel like your, your place was guaranteed no matter who you were so it was it was a cool period of time and you know we we, we went through all the games the the really the the bit that really stands out in my mind there right is, is there's two bits one is that Clive the manager Clive Woodward and you know he's you know whether he's your cup of tea or not as, as a manager or whatever he you know he's gone and done he's been brilliant at the time he was brilliant as well you know what I felt Clive recognised really quickly was that his strengths and his weaknesses he understood straight away and that maybe he wasn't the world cask coach that he wanted to be. And although he did do, you know, a lot of the coaching, he got in a world-class coaching side. He realized he was a world-class manager essentially. Um, And then he set about building this incredible team around him, this support network, this, you know, backroom staff that it meant if we got to a world cup final, there was going to be no reason we could look back and go, well, if we just had that, we would have won, Mm. you know, we had every everything was catered for, covered every eventuality. He thought, you know, he was just a great thinker. You know, he would try anything. If he thought it would work and it would make one percent difference, he you know, he would he would try it. So we had this great plan, you know, in terms of being the fittest team in the world and best prepared and we we set four years to achieve that and come the World Cup we were the number one side in the world. We'd beaten all the Southern Hemisphere sides at home which was huge, you know, it's not something that happens, you know, uh, feels like ever in this country, you know, and to do it at home and then do it away as well that same summer was was enormous. So we went in with huge confidence. But the best, so I talked about two bits. One was one was Clive and, you know, him creating that strategy, the culture and, and understanding his strengths and weaknesses and, and getting the whole team to buy into it. And, and the second was that when we, we realised we, you know, the whole plan had come to fruition. We were the best side in the world going to the World Cup, having been knocked out by South Africa in the quarterfinal in '99 to 900 drop goals from Yanni De Beer. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a classic game. Uh, you know, Clive, Clive, and the coaches knew we could win the World Cup. Ultimately, you know, as I'm sure this is what it's like to be a, a, a Kiwi going to a World Cup. Right? <laughs> you, you, you're number one side in the world every time, and. It shows you how hard it is to win because you guys haven't won it every time. But so we knew we knew we were good enough to be in the final, yeah. And it was going to be what our second final. So the coaches went away and looked at all other, you know, was it Super Bowl, World Cup, football finals, cricket finals, anything that you know was uh, was as an important match as this was going to be, and tried to find something within it that. Um, you know that would that would link across all of them, and invariably, what they decided and what the outcome was from their research was that it it normally came down to the last minute or one big play. You know, rarely was a final, no matter who was in it, mm. massively one sided. Of course, it was occasionally, but yeah. So we knew that it was going to come down to that last minute and a half. Doesn't matter who we played. The fact that we played Australia and actually on the day we were much better than it still came. It was still one of the closest games ever. And um, you know, we rehearsed for the last two, three months of of training for that World Cup because we were in such a good spot. We rehearsed every possible outcome that we would need in the last minute and a half of a game to win. And 
not just sort of go through it, you know, just passing it through the hands, going through the motions against live opposition for like 20 minutes at a time, yeah. absolutely battering each other until we got it right. And we got it wrong lots and lots of times. But so come the World Cup final in 2003 and, you know, Johnny Wilkinson's obviously everyone in the world knows that we're going to, in the last minute and a half, we're going to try and kick a drop goal, yeah. you know, and get Johnny in the, you know, even the Aussies knew that. We'd rehearsed it a million times. We knew what was going to be needed and, and there was no pressure. You know, I came off the bench as a, as a 24-year-old, you know, very exuberantly enthusiastic and also absolutely crapping himself because <laughs> the game was so close. Yeah. The, the 2003 final, if you remember it, like the, it's I seesawed, did. right? Yeah. So Elton Flatley and Johnny Wilkinson kicked both their points. They were machines that day. Yeah. And I was on the bench just, you know, I don't know whether you've ever felt this, Jimmy, but when you're on the bench, right, it's tough. You just want to get on. You want to make a difference. And then if the game's close, you're sort of, well, in my head, I was like, yeah. the gremlins. Do I want to be yeah. the person that gives away the penalty yeah. and costs England the World Cup? Yeah. But, um, mate, once you're on the pitch, you cross that white line. It's, it's all history. It was, mate, it was an incredible experience. That World Cup was incredible. Being that four-year journey to that World Cup, well, three years for me from 2001, was uh, singly most enjoyable you know, experience I had on, on a rugby pitch with with all those individuals. And you came on in that final and made a couple of big plays from Emery too. Oh, mate, <clears throat> I don't know whether they were big plays. You you, you do your bit, don't you? You know, you, you come on. Um, so I, I was, <laughs> but, but, but it was. I was just literally doing my job, man. I was I was so enthusiastic. I wanted to be on from the first minute, so I had a lot of energy to, to exude in, uh, in the 10 minutes or whatever it was that I was on. <laughs> You know, I made a lot of tackles. You know, first play, the lineouts overthrown. I'm supposed to lift at the back. I recognise it's going over the top. Ball lands in my hands, and you're into the match straight away. So it was Huge perfect. Play. <laughs> so 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 big. Yeah, I mean, three side steps, a uh, handoff, and then you know, goose step down the wing. Uh, it was five yards from the try line. No, that's not what happened. Sadly, um, but I had I had one I had one involvement that was was my sort of trademark, which was trying to get to that charge down, and yeah. we knew so. Lawrence gave away a penalty, uh, which allowed Elton Flatley to kick to put its level with a minute and a half left. And um, and under the post, John, I was just like, look, lads, we know what we're doing. We'll kick the ball long, Moodos, you'll, you'll put pressure on Rogers, and uh, hopefully he'll scuff it because of that. And, you know, we'll go to our pattern, which was, which was zigzag, and that was about just working yeah. the middle of the pitch to get John in a position for the drop goal. And I put, I put a bit of pressure on Rogers, and, and he scuffed it. And the mate, what you don't know from that moment on is from the line out that ensued after that. So we had a line out, Matt Dawson made a big break and Johnny ends up kicking the drop goal. Because everyone in the world knew that we were trying to get Johnny in the position to kick a drop goal. Yeah. We needed a get out. So if the Aussies congregated around the breakdown to try and, you know, charge him down, put pressure on him, then Johnny needed a get out. So from that line out, I had to hold my width on the right hand side of the pitch. And I was Johnny's get out for that crossfield kick. And um, yeah, if you've got the video, you've got the VHS, <laughs> then you can put the tape in and uh, uh, and you'll see that there's there's a blonde-haired young flanker stood on the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, like waving his arms frantically. <laughs> it's like, I, I saw my own World Cup moment of glory. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I was a little bit disappointed when Johnny slotted the drop goal. I thought, you selfish bugger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's classic. Oh, that's how nice. <laughs> and then how were the celebrations after that? Winning a World Cup's obviously the pinnacle of the game. Must have been surreal. Mate, it was surreal. Do you know what? No one like you guys with the Hurricanes won the 
won the Super Rugby title, right? So you felt similar. Um, I think whenever you win, win anything, there's that immediate exuberation, right? The whistle goes, the yeah. the instant euphoria, that <clears throat> natural release, um, you know, of all the pressure and anxiety and build up of, you know, dreams and aspirations and all that sort of stuff. And then <clears throat> when you come off the pitch, having, you know, done the laps of honour and, and paraded the cup and, yeah. you know, sung we are the champions or whatever it is that you're saying i think you guys have better songs in new zealand we just <laughs> we just have champions champions that's it that's all people sing when they win but no no one prepares you for what the feeling is like when you go back inside like so when you've done all that and you know the crowd sort of died down you go into change room i felt this like real like numbness it was just like yeah it felt really weird. Like you sort of felt like we should all be dancing and, you know, dropping yeah. out some shapes and there should be a boom box <laughs> on. And but we didn't have any of that. It was, you know, we just sort of sat there. There was, yeah. you know, someone bought in some beers and we had a, we're having a, we're having a beer and was chatting to Martin Corrie and Jono and, and I just felt weird. I just, I didn't know how to feel. And after every big win we had during my career, I felt exactly the same. I found it really hard to, feel inspired or you know excited after that initial exuberance and I don't know whether it's because you you exert so much into winning in those big games that actually all of a sudden you've just burnt yourself out but yeah so I I always find it quite hard to go out after after a game my my next day like it tended to be you know an early start so after the World Cup final we we myself Steve Thompson Joe Worsley Ben Ben Cohen went out the front door once we got through the small crowd that was there, wandered down to the the beach, hired some surfboards, had about three or four gin and tonics before we went out, <laughs> like nine nine thirty in the morning, and uh, it was it was brilliant because we didn't have all the crazy media attention because obviously were the Aussies were were so desperately disappointed they lost it was like it never happened. Yeah, you know we had the the, the tight nucleus of England fans that were still there. Um, but so we could just enjoy ourselves as a unit. Um, and we, yeah, we, we had a good old day. I think Mike Tindall met, met his, uh, met his future, future right. wife, Zara hey. that night, the night hey. of the world cup final, <laughs> Jace Leonard, Jace Leonard and a few of the other boys ended up getting bought home in a, in a, in a police car because they couldn't find any taxis. Um, you know, it was the, the usual, the usual stuff. It's, yeah. It was. It was. No, it was nothing. It wasn't like Tom Brady. I watched a video of Tom Brady winning the <laughs> Super Bowl with the Bucks recently. Did you see that? Yeah. So what is he doing? That's the sort of stuff you can do, right? When you when you won when you won seven. Was it six Super Bowls? Yeah. He's got that. Yeah, the guy. Yeah. You know, finals are won in the and by small moments. You've practiced it endlessly over the last four years, and then you're in another final this time against South Africa. Yeah, but you obviously come out on the wrong side this time. Talk to me about that one, mate. Well, this was this was like a whole different kettle of fish. This World Cup for us because after two thousand and three, you know, Clive left. Um, Andy Robinson took over, who's brilliant coach, incredible forwards coach. Um, you know, but essentially inherited the same setup, same staff, minus a lot of the retired players. You know, so Jason, John O. Um, you know, heaps of boys were injured and it was a really difficult period after, after that world cup. And so we came into 2007, 
you know, Andy Robinson re- was released from his contract six months before we got to the World Cup. So yeah, everything that had been built over three years was suddenly gone. Brian Ashton came in, who who was a completely different thinker. You know, Robbo was very similar to Clive. Brian was very much, you know, a just, you know, play what you see, guys, which is great, you know, and 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 refreshing and, and brilliant for, for a lot of players. But when you're a side that's still got the nucleus of all those players that have mm. played you know, four years before and, and a lot of guys that have gone through that system, which was very structured, you know, defensively and in attack. Yes, there was, you know, when 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 it was open play, it was play we see, but there was a lot of structure to it. So we, we really struggled, I think, with the way that Brian wanted to play. So we came to that tournament, mate, we I think we finished fourth or fifth in the Six Nations. Um, we had no, no real form, you know, prior to 2003, we'd won the Grand Slam. You know, we'd we'd beaten all the Southern Hemisphere sides. We're number one in the world. I think we were like, yeah. you know, eight, nine, tenth in the world at this point. True. And I, I don't think you know we we were all we all fiercely believed that we we were better than we were playing. But you know, we had a new coach. Things weren't gelling. And after so our second game, we narrowly beat America in the first game. Phil Vickery, our tour captain, was uh, was banned. From tripping uh, for tripping one of the American players in that game, so it wasn't exactly a great start to the tournament. Um, we then uh, we then went to play South Africa without our captain. The the following week, we lost thirty six nil, which was like a record defeat. You know? Yeah, and you know, so we at that point we we were sort of like it's all over, lads. You know, a, a lot of the guys had already sort of packed their bags, feeling like it was time to go home. Uh, we had we had like a, we had a we had a meeting afterwards and it was a, one of those honesty sessions right that you have in not always in times of crisis yeah, sometimes crisis when you're, when you're on the <laughs> yeah sometimes when you're on the front foot but um but it was perfect you know it just brought everyone together there was a there was a lot of finger pointing there was a lot of uh um you know we need to do this better um and ultimately we just came to a decision that we need to focus on one simple thing game in game out uh, and we need to play better than we are because you know we're letting ourselves down at this time and you know the coaches bought into it we literally focused on one area of the game that was it that was all our week was built around so against australia in the quarterfinal they'd had a they'd smashed everyone they played wales fiji and someone else so they hadn't had particularly tough games but they were annihilating them with amazing plays mm-hmm. but john wells noticed that they weren't having to commit anyone to the ruck to to win the ball so our simple focus was just mash the rucks, every ruck. And we did. And, you know, we beat Australia by a point. Now, no one expected us to do that. You know, we were the only people that believed we we, we could do it. Um, and we probably didn't deserve to do it. But we just had this, you know, sheer bloody minded us as a group of players that knew we were underperforming and, and knew we could do better. We just had to take control of it. And it worked. You know, we ended up beating France in their home stadium in the semi-final. Um, you know, Josh Lucy scored early on. Good, good bounce of the ball gets past. Uh, I can't remember. I was going to say your memory's on fire if you remember that. But oh, just, <laughs> just let yeah, I can, pic- I can, I can picture him. But I can't remember his name. Um, but yeah, mate. So all of a sudden, so we, we lose thirty six 0 to South Africa in the in the pool game. All of a sudden, we're in a World Cup final yeah. playing South Africa. It's like. So I think in many ways, you know, the, the journeys were totally different. But in many ways, our 2007, winning the World Cup, 
you know, we'd won the World Cup by getting to the final. For us, we'd gone through so much getting there. You know, the, the chaos before the change of coaches, the, the disarray when we were in camp and the, you know, the crosswires with players and coaches. And, you know, it for whatever reason, it just it just came together in those last three games. You know, that singular focus, you know, the French game was just applying pressure to Boxis, who'd come in as a young fly half. And, and in every game, he'd kicked hand, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20 points from drop kicks, penalties. So we just we just refused to allow him to kick the ball. So my job was singularly to put pressure on his kicking game, which I absolutely loved. <laughs> and that was great fun for me. <clears throat> so I did that all day. Didn't touch the ball or pass or anything. <laughs> just chased the, chased the fly after me. And, and you were still suffering from your, you would have still been suffering from your head knocks because this was the same time? Yeah, so the so the Aussie game came directly after the Tonga match. Yeah, yeah. But, mate. Like I said, I, I got through the. I, I generally felt no ill effects from. Oh, true. Yeah, a. I was lucky to get picked off the bench to play that Tonga game. I was then lucky to to make it through that Tonga game alive. Quite frankly, yeah. Um, and then and then to to come out the back of it and pass all the all the all the tests to to allow me to play. Um, that was really cool. And you know, Jason Robinson, who got who tore his hamstring in the in the South Africa game where we got smashed, he thought his tournament was over and he was stuck on 49 caps. So the only way he would get to 50 is if we made it to the, the semi-final or the final. Yeah. And so that was, that was pretty cool to be able to run out with him on his 50th cap. Sure. Um, you know, cause he was, he was a special player, man, you know, and I've watched some, some great New Zealand players over the years, you know, Glenn Osborne, I remember when he came on the scene, he was just since then, but Jason Robinson, mate, oh, Next level way. Playing with him, he was just so class, mate. He was so class. Was he uh, one of the most gifted players you've played with? So he wasn't the most naturally skillful player. Yeah. Like he was unbelievably powerful. He could he could literally change direction at full speed, but not like over half a metre. He'd yeah. like move like it seemed like 15 metres away. <laughs> He's just, I mean, he was just incredible. Yeah. Like he... You just can't teach that. It was just something that was so exciting to watch and to be a part of when you were in the team with him. You just knew he could find space anywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, but the most the most talented guy I ever witnessed play the game that I've ever played with was Jordan Murphy. He was Irish international, yeah. played with him for a long time at Leicester and he's a good mate of mine. But he was he played Gaelic football, right? And the, so the Gaelic football, if the ball's moving towards you, you can't pick it up with your hands. You have to kick it into your hands. So it's, you know, like a little chip kick, which yeah. for you, mate, you're probably like, that sounds really easy. But for me, that would be like, I'd fall over 25 times before I got to it, just thinking about it. But, mate, I remember we played a game. I played a game, whoever it was against at Leicester at Welford Road. They they kicked the ball uh, out of their 22. And so their winger could run onto it, which he was at pace. And Jordan was sprinting flat out to the ball from fullback in the opposite direction. And as you're getting there, normally you're going to make, you're going to make a decision, right? You'll slow down. You're going to drop on the ball. Um, you'll fly hack it through. You'll slow down because the other guy's going to beat you to it. Then you're going to have to tackle him, whatever it might be. He did not break sprint flat out. This ball's bouncing towards him flat out with the winger chasing him. He just chipped it at full speed into his hands, chipped the fullback and scored in the corner. It was 
Do you know, it was just one of those things. And it probably doesn't sound great now, but if you <laughs> even if you see it now, it's an incredible piece of skill. Yeah, it does, and he yeah. could just do crazy stuff, man. I love, I love playing. I, I love being surrounded by people that are infinitely more talented than me, right? Because <laughs> it tends to make you look much better as a player because you have to do a lot less. hundred percent. Did you find the higher the level you went up, the sort of easier your role was? Hundred percent, because everyone's doing, like, everyone's doing their job properly. Yeah. You know, it's just they're focused on doing their job as best as they can and they're normally doing it really really well so therefore you're just only having to concentrate on doing your bit of the game yeah. as well as you can I right? said so it can't be any easier whereas sometimes with the club or you know anywhere else you, you're you going to make if, those if, offloads you're going to make up the other stuff <laughs> like, I know, I, know I, I, take, I take the piss out of myself but I love playing the game like and when I'm when I say the game I know I love tackling I love chasing people down I love pressure in the opposition but I love to play as well and like as a kid I played so much seven sevens was was my life you know I loved it because you had so much open space you know you know I, I wasn't a gifted sidestepper but I was pretty quick as a kid and I had a pretty good hand so I love playing the game one actually another one of my regrets was that I think probably because I, I played for a club like Leicester for so long that towards the latter stages of my career, you you got very nervous about actually trying to do offloads and all that sort of stuff because the the meetings on Monday, the amount of abuse you get if something went wrong, you know, it just it it almost put you off. And and yeah. I have to admit that frustrates me and I resent that a little bit. Imagine the player you would have been if you played Super Rugby. Oh mate, imagine, <laughs> you know, Dan Carter. There was. I was a centre, mate. You never know. You know? Could have... <laughs> no, I think I was destined to be a flanker. That's fine, mate. And I loved it. Yeah, for sure. And then let's go. Let's skip another four years. Your World Cup. This time you're captain of England, coming to the mighty New Zealand to take on the World Cup again. Talk me through that. Well, again, mate, a, a totally different um, kettle of fish, right? So. We we come in actually we're in really good form. Uh, we'd had a, we had a good run of games. We had a load of young guys coming through: Ben Youngs, Dylan Hartley, Courtney, Law, Courtney Laws, uh, to name a few. Yeah. And we'd we'd won the Six Nations. We'd be in Australia on on our summer tour away from home. So we, we we were building nicely. I don't think any of us thought we were the finished article. I don't think any. You know, I felt we could reach a final, but. Um, I knew a lot of stuff would have to fall into place for us to do so, but I knew we had the capability of, of doing well. You know, we'd, we'd training camp and, you know, ultimately, obviously in that World Cup, we, we ended up losing to France in the quarterfinal, a team that we shouldn't have lost against because we were we were much better. And um, I'd been, <laughs> classic, I was recovering from a, prior to the tournament, playing you against Ione, uh, Ione? Yeah, right. I can't remember, I can't remember, I did my knee, right, so I missed the Six Nations in the build-up, so, oh. and I think I came back for the last game, I got fit for the final warm-up game just prior to the World Cup, playing that tweaked my knee a little bit again, so okay. my first game wasn't the first match of the World Cup, even though I was captain of the other side. It was uh, it was the second game, so Mike Tindall was the captain in that first game. So I was actually, you know, in my head in the warm up to the Georgia match, which was my first start. I I, I felt like I tweaked my knee again, and I went down on it, and I was like, man, I've just spent two months getting back to this position. The coach had put all their faith in me. The physios have worked enormously hard, and and in the moment before my first game in the World Cup as captain. 
I thought my knee had gone again and uh and thankfully it hadn't it was just one of those you know sometimes when you come back from an injury you know it just feels a bit glitchy and, yeah. and it was what once we got into the game it was uh it was fine um but we spent we spent a lot of the build-up to that World Cup also talking about New Zealand and the pressure cooker that it is as a you know as a, as a rugby environment because you know so much of the of the media spotlight is on rugby right so as England players coming to New Zealand you know the the media attention was going to be on us as well you know Mike Tindall obviously just um, married into the royal family as well so that was creating big news yeah. um, and like in any campaign you you spend two to three months building up to the the tournament so you're away from family you're working hard all that jazz and you always target a window during the well, as an England team, this is what we did. We targeted a window um, normally after a, an easier game. So after the Georgia, it was in Georgia. I think it was the Georgia game. But um, we were going to have a you know an evening off. We'd have training off the next day, and then we'd be able to go out and let our hair down. Yeah. And uh, and and that's and that's what we did. And you know, sadly, you know, a few people got caught in uh, in awkward situations, and the media were just on us. So despite the fact that we'd spent three months going, right guys, it's going to be a media, you know, media hotspot. Um, the attention's all going to be on us. You know, you've got to be super careful. You've got to, um, you know, whatever you do, we, we literally repeated it. Even when we got there, we repeat it, you know, it felt like too much to yeah. the point where you just feel like you're saying it right. And to still come unstuck because of something that we bought on ourselves, I think was, is the biggest frustration for me for that world cup, because ultimately what transpired off the back of that, you know, the, you know, rightly or wrongly. Okay. Ultimately, you know, a few players, we all went out, we had a team meal, we had a few drinks. Um, There were lots of nations doing it on the same night, just in the bars around the corner. Um, And, you know, for whatever reason, we have a couple of guys that ended up getting too far and that were, you know, high profile, profile players. So the media attention is on them. And, and, you know, that, that was it. You know, all of a sudden you spend the next three, four weeks talking about just those moments. And then once one moment like that happens in a campaign, anything else that happens that may or may not like the borderline stuff <laughs> that I think there's something with Johnny and the, and the balls, you know, whether he was writing on the balls or something, yeah. you know, um, there was there was all sorts of stuff that then grew and grew and grew and it was painful, mate. And as a captain, you know, as a relatively new captain, so I'd done a season, the season before as, as England captain, um, you know, it was it was suddenly a lot to burden because you're not actually worrying about playing the game. You're you're having conversations with players about what's happened the night before, how they're going to address the media, and it's just ongoing. And there was more reports coming in. Is this? And it was, it was it was hard work. And we we had to sit down and and as captain, you have to you know have to also put your hands up afterwards and goes, you know, there was something I clearly got wrong because. I thought we'd prepared well. I thought we had a good squad that knew what they were doing. There was a good balance of old boys and young guys um, and, and everything in between. And and we were playing well. Um, and we allowed external factors to totally derail us. And I think that's what frustrates me. And, you know, when you're the captain, the coach, you've got to put your hand up and go, you know, okay, look, we, there's clearly stuff we should have, we should have seen coming and, and been able to avoid. And, and I think probably coming down on some of the, the players earlier prior to the tour, some of the, the, you know, the misdemeanors stuff that wasn't a, wasn't a big deal, but maybe in the, in the light of day, you'd actually gone, okay, you know, 
crack down on that hard when it happened it sets a tone then for for the rest you know if uh if you let one person get away with it mm. other stuff other stuff comes off the back of it and the biggest disappointment then off off the world cup was okay that's all happened but we then play france in the quarter final a team that you know we could beat when we knew we could beat and it's not that they were bad side there you know they're obviously a very good side with with wonderful players but we played <clears throat> we had the capability and we had the players to to win that game and we didn't and you know mate it was it was tough coming back to this country after that it's tough and if you're a captain it's even tougher because the, the blame you know is is pointed and landing on your shoulders and you have to you know you have to you have to take it did you feel like the um english media was harder on the england side or on you as captain um no, I don't think so. Like we know, we know what the media is like anywhere in the world. You know, yeah. America, England, New Zealand, Australia. You know, and we knew it was coming. It wasn't like it was a surprise. Um, you know, I think the the fallout from it was there was all sorts of other stuff that happened here. You know that, you know they had this. Um, uh, what was it called? It was like a survey. You know, it was supposed to be an anonymous survey. You know, people wanted to find out what had been going on, oh, so everyone had the ability to do this anonymous survey. Anonymous survey then gets leaked to the press by the by the people in charge of the RFU at the time. I mean, it was just, mate. You know, it's just some horrible people involved doing doing stuff that was only for them to look good. You know, yeah. it was uh, it was a really tough time. Yeah. So, mate, for me personally, it was hard. But yeah, you know, I don't blame the media. The media, they you know, it's, it's their job, right? It's if you allow them the opportunity, if you give them the stories, then you know if they're out there creating stories, then it's different. But you know, we we gave we gave them stuff to write about, so yeah. I got no uh, I got no qualms about that. It's good, and that was your last game in the England jersey, eh? It was, mate. And I, do you know, what? and I was bitter about that for a long time um, because actually we didn't touch upon uh, Leicester and my my departure from Leicester, which is my schoolboy club. Was it before so the World was, Cup? Um, yeah, it was. Yeah. So I, I left the year before the World Cup. Um, well, I say left. I was released from Leicester. So I played at Leicester for 14 years. I was 30. But, you know, I'd gone from 14 to 30 through the junior side and yeah. all the way through. Um, you know, I, I envisaged playing my my sort of my time out at Leicester. So to, to walk in on a meeting and be told that I was surplus to requirements whilst in the year that I was picked to be England captain mm. was, was pretty hard pill to swallow. Um, and I felt really bitter about that for, for a long time. And, you know, when I say a long time, I mean, well into my retirement. So, so I had that literally the year before the world cup. So that's still lingering in my head. And I've moved to Bath to play, which I love. I'm still, I still live in Bath now. I love this place, but you know, the rugby wasn't quite the same. And then, you know, to finish your England career. So well, a decade playing for England, um, in a in a World Cup campaign that ended as it did um, was was also pretty pretty disappointing and and a hard thing to swallow. But you know, I I stepped away from international rugby as I was always going to do after that World Cup because I think, as I said earlier, Jimmy, you know, there were better players coming through at that time. You know, I was I was still a quality player. I was still playing well, um, and I thought there was still at least three or four more years left in the tank yet. But I wanted to focus my attention on playing for for the club side that. Had, put their faith in me which was Bath um, and then literally I came back from uh, from that World Cup had a, had a week or two off and and the first game I played was against Worcester away and obviously again so you got all the media attention so Lewis Moody England captain coming back after a you know disastrous World Cup campaign you know yeah. he's got a point to prove blah 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 all this which I did I did have a point to prove um, 
I went for a tap tackle on the fullback, literally just a diving tap tackle, and uh, and landed with my arm outstretched with my weak shoulder. And so I'd had three shoulder reconstructions, and, and I knew instantly. I knew instantly that was it. I just knew. And I tried to play the rest of the game <laughs> with one arm, essentially. Got knocked out twice, probably you know, made it infinitely worse for, for my team because I, I, you know, I was essentially, uh, yeah, not functioning correctly. And, uh, and with about 20 minutes to go, I was thankfully taken off and, and that was my last game of rugby. So, you know, the, you can't, you don't get to write the endings of your careers. You know, I had the most enjoyable experience in my life playing rugby. It was awesome, but you don't get to write the happy ending and, and going out on uh, lifting the World Cup as England captain. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I got I got it a very different way, but it doesn't make my career any less enjoyable. And I don't look back now with any regret or bitterness anymore. You know, that's that's all long gone. I've been retired nearly ten years, and and I have a family and kids that that are now enjoying their sport, and I'm watching them. And yeah. you know, and and as you said at start, putting my passions into into areas of life that that now interest, in, interest me and, and have a huge amount of meaning and purpose for me. Yeah, well, let, let's get to that. Um, you're, you've obviously set up the Lewis Moody Foundation. You're doing all sorts of good work around brain tumours, helping people with brain tumours, getting, uh, I guess, making getting the awareness out there. Do you want to talk to me about what inspired you to set up that um, foundation and what you're actually doing? Sure, man. Um, yeah, so we met, actually, so it was, it was, two weeks after I retired. So I pulled the pin on, you know, my, my shoulder finally gave in. I had to press the button. I think we did it on Twitter, actually. I literally pressed the button on the, on the computer. And um, and that was it. You know, wake up the next day, what do you do? And I got a, I got a letter in the post from a guy called Graham Stark, and he lived up in Sheffield. And it said, look, my son's got a rare form of cancer. Would you, would you mind helping him out, coming up, doing a training session, maybe bring some kit up so they can auction so he can send his mates off um so we did went up met them met joss um leo and, and the family took a training session took a load of kit they auctioned it off it was one of those occasions actually you meet you meet some people in your life and there are there are there are moments equal sliding doors or whatever that happen um that just have a huge impact on you and and this did so i kept in touch with joss and graham for for the next year i got another phone call from graham well, we've been speaking all the time, but a phone call to say that the lads were struggling, Leo and Joss. Leo was his, Joss's brother. Um, was there anything I could do to sort of alleviate the boredom and monotony of <clears throat> of, of dealing with illness? Um, so I took them to a, a game at Twickenham. So we had hospitality, pre-game hospitality, all the good stuff, right? Chose a team that I knew we'd beat, so pit Wales. <laughs> and um, <laughs> we lost them at the weekend, right? So I can say that. <clears throat> and... Um, and we, you know, we had a great day. So we took them down in the change rooms afterwards, you know, all the stuff that former England captains, you know, have access to, which I feel incredibly lucky and privileged to have done. So took them down to the change rooms, you meet the current team, players, got by the match afterwards, hospitality, the RFU were brilliant. And, you know, about two days afterwards, so Joss has been there and, and chatting to the England players. He's got signed photos, memorabilia. Graham, his dad called me about, it was a week and a half later and just a mate, this was perfect. Like the lads elated, dancing around the house, you know, just uh, on the day was in a wheelchair because his illness was, um, you know, was, was at that stage. He was, he was struggling, but he was just elated off the back of it. Photographs, memorabilia, flags, scarves, everything all around the house. Yeah. And then at the end of the phone call, you know, said, uh, 
he said thank you so much and just said I'm really sorry but Joss lost his battle with uh, with cancer uh, right. yesterday and and for me that was just a massive like moan in my life it was like hey I've got to know this guy over a, over a year and a half got to know him well he's a young lad he was only 16 um, he was an incredible sportsman athlete rugby player um, and all of a sudden his, his life's been taken from him and I think me and Annie just Annie, my wife, just wanted to focus all our attention on on doing something super positive. So we set up a a charity in Joss's memory. So I would call it Joss Riley Stark um, Foundation, but I was I was directed differently at the time to <laughs> use my sort of name to yeah. you know for for good. So okay, that's we went with the Lewis Moody Foundation, and uh, so ever since then, mate, we've we've spent five six years. Uh, we actually launched it in two thousand and fourteen, so it took a bit of time to get everything going, and and you know we've we've raised nearly over two million. All the stuff that we we do, so how we raise money for brain tumors is by taking people on crazy challenges to places. Uh, they're not always crazy, but, but but a lot of them are. The first one was to the North Pole. That was pretty epic. Um, we then did a thousand miles across Vietnam and Cambodia. Uh, we then did coast to coast Costa Rica. It's like crocodiles. We were in kayaks and bikes. It was, it was uh, they're just mental trips. And we finished our last trip. Obviously, the rest have been cancelled this year and postponed because of um, COVID. But we finished. Thankfully, we got back from the South Pole in uh, at the end of January, so just in time to to get it in. And uh, you know, it's 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 been a, a wonderful sort of five years. The current situation has changed everything massively. Charities have been, and ours has been hit. Um, fundraising has been decimated. Um, we've been able to do virtual stuff. So thankfully, the light is at the end of the tunnel. You know, the vaccines and everything are in place. So we've got some other challenges and some different means of raising money. But um, but if anyone wants to look at it, because, uh, you know, in the UK anyway, brain tumours are the biggest cancer killer. Of, of under 40s and children bar none um, but until a few years ago I only received 2% of all funding so around the world I think America are leading the way with brain tumours but um, still more needs to be done uh, and, and there's always good stuff that, that comes out of New Zealand in terms of research and knowledge as well so um, you know it's, 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 not a, it's not a UK based thing it's a, it's a global thing so the more awareness we can raise and the more we can do for brain tumours the better but the Lewis Moody foundation.org is the website if anyone wants to have a look at what we do it's uh when you talk about retirement and finding your, your next thing i was super lucky that that letter fell through my door because the the the, the irony of it is that them asking me for help essentially helped me more than they could ever have imagined because it gave me a purpose post playing yeah. that i otherwise wouldn't have found and uh and i feel really lucky to have met graham and, and we just, you know, still in contact with him. I was chatting to him just the other day. So sure. it's, uh, you know, that's really cool. Mate, you're doing some amazing things. And yes, any Waterland listeners out there, please go and check that out and donate if you can. I know people with young kids, I mean, the idea of them getting sick and especially something like a brain tumor, man, it just breaks your heart even thinking about it. Eh? So it's, um, it's incredible what you're doing in that space. Cheers, Jimmy. Yeah, and uh, look, mate, if anyone wants anyone listening, I'd say come and join us on the Lions Tour. But uh, at the minute, it doesn't look like, you know, who knows where that's going to be, if it's going to happen. Um, I, I really hope it does happen because, you know, even if it's not in South Africa, but um, it would be a real tragedy if that doesn't, but safety first and all that, I suppose. Right? Yeah. Is that the next um, tour for the charity, is it? Well, so we've got an Amazon, we've got an Amazon tour as well, but um, that's been postponed to 2020. But the Lions obviously is 
you know, you can't, well, we can postpone it, obviously, if they move it till next year, which is not a problem. But if they move the challenge, uh, if they move the, the tour somewhere else, then the challenge will, will have to be cancelled. But, you know, I'd still love to see the, yeah. the Lions to go ahead e- either way, you know, as long as it's safe. So how do you get involved in one of those things? Like obviously, all these experiences, like going to the South Pole and uh, doing the Amazon and all that, that is unbelievable experiences. Can anyone just come in and, what do you do, pay to join it, do you? Yeah, mate. Yeah. So if you go on the website, there's, you know, there's a whole host of pages, but if you go to the challenge page, you'll see what's, what's coming up and you literally just click on it. So all of our challenges, they're not for superhumans far from it. You know, it's just about getting from A to B from start to finish. No time. There's no, you know, not trying to set any records. We're just trying to get from A to B and raise as much money as we can in the way and hope that everyone enjoys it. It's going to be hard and it's going to push you. But, um, you know, we have guys that have been sat behind a desk for 20 years and, and are nearly 20 stone. And we've got super fit triathletes and all sorts, obviously, and everything in between. Sure. But it is, it's epic, mate. And you'll have to come, Jim, yeah, one will. day. You know, I've mate. got something lined up for you. What have you got? <laughs> I hope it doesn't involve walking because my hip's fucked. <laughs> oh, yeah, good point. <laughs> got a nice marathon run for you. That'll be all right, <laughs> won't it? I didn't have a look at them. I was like, oh, a lot of them had treks and stuff. I was like, oh, I have to wait till he gets some yeah. sort of like wheelchair or biking one. Yeah, just have to get you in a in a push chair, mate. You'll be fine. <laughs> you can you push can Jimmy pull up me the hill. Sled to the North Pole. We <laughs> <laughs> good training. Yeah, yeah, man. Mate, but that's unreal and uh, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I know it's getting late over there, so I'll wrap that up. I had so much I wanted to talk to you about. You've obviously had an amazing career. Um, Love following your journey since I became your brother-in-law or even before that. Um, I remember playing as you, your character on Rugby 08 back in the day and you were – you were a good tackler. <laughs> you weren't a st- you didn't Stop have a it. you didn't have a star, but you're a you. I remember you being a real good tackler, and I think um, <laughs> good at the charge down. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Well, mate, I remember. Do you know what the one thing, the one joyous moment I had from 2011 World Cup was coming off the pitch afterwards when I was pretty desolate about the the whole game, and I could hear someone shouting my name really loud and really uh, really excitedly I was like fair play thank you someone someone really loves me and then I realised it was you I was like oh, <laughs> Mate, it I, must have been bad I remember getting on the partner's bus after that game and oh my gosh it was like everyone was in tears obviously I was gutted for you but I didn't really care and I was pumped <laughs> and I was in the wrong environment on that bus <laughs> you, you were pumped I remember even in the I think we went back to the hotel afterwards you were like, oh yeah it was a good time mate. i'm glad you were there i'm glad you were there it certainly lightened my mood <laughs> oh mate well anyway hopefully we can catch up sometime soon once this um covid stuff finishes and yeah like i said i'd love to love to jump on one of those charity things or if i can help out in any way um you're doing amazing things in that space i'd love to be able to help out so um let me know but really appreciate you giving up your time mate um hell of a yarn hell of a journey what a lad Pleasure, mate. Take care and good luck with the podcast. I genuinely, I, I genuinely love it. I've been listening over here, so uh, so keep it going. Cheers, Hopefully, mate. I've not put everyone to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's bloody good. <laughs>